Hello, everybody. Welcome to the latest and greatest episode of Inside the Hexagon. I am your host, as always, Phil Anities, and alongside me is my co-host, Josh Molina. Josh, how you doing, man? I'm doing great, Phil. This is The Last Emperor versus The Grim. What a main event it was. Historic evening. Great time to be an MMA fan, so I'm really excited to relive this show with you. Yeah, I, I don't know that the Grim is really the best nickname, uh, but especially in, in relation to The Last Emperor, but, you know, what it is what it is. So, uh, But for our, I want to welcome our listeners to, to our new listeners. Inside the Hexagon is about walking through the major events, fighters, and milestones of Strike Force, which was a very important and innovative MMA promotion that existed from 2006 until 2013. And both Josh and I worked for the promotion for a time, so we're rehashing our memories and learning and filling in uh, about the history that we're not aware of. But on today's episode, we are going to be discussing the Strike Force debut of the greatest heavyweight fighter of all time, don't at me, Fedor Emelianenko. Uh, this would also be Strike Force's debut on CBS, marking a huge step for the fledgling promotion. And in the co-main event, Jake Shields and Jason Mayhem Miller would vie for the recently vacated Strike Force middleweight title. And also on the card would be the newly minted Strike Force light heavyweight champion, Gegard Musassi, in a non-title fight. Tons to get to, so uh, I want to get to it. I just want to say before we get going that this was an amazing historic night for MMA. And so, we're, you know, we're so involved in terms of the sport, where we're at today in 2021. And sometimes it's tough to forget or to, it's tough to remember how many strides we've made in such a short amount of time. I mean, we're talking about MMA in primetime on a Saturday night. I mean, this is the time slot for 48 hours, which is one of the most watched shows on television. This is like huge TV watching night for, you know, the older generation, but it is prime time. And somehow Strikeforce finagled a way to get into prime time, not being the most successful MMA company in North America at the time. UFC was far bigger, far more successful of a, a pay-per-view company, but yet through, you know, sort of this weird series of business transactions involving uh, different companies and Showtime and, and Viacom and CBS. I mean, this sort of thing just sort of took off. And so I got to feel that if you're Dana White, no matter how far in the lead you think you are, you got to be pissed that your competition is right there in prime time. Oh, yeah. And that's why uh, they, they counter-programmed this event. So, yeah. And we'll, we'll, we'll talk more about that. Before we jump in, I did want to mention that Inside the Hexagon is now a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. I'm really excited about this. They've got some other sports shows. Uh, you'll probably be hearing some cross-promotional stuff, and, and you'll be getting more information in the coming weeks. Uh, we're just looking to improve the show, the the the, uh, the graphics, and, and just some of the, the offerings. We're going to start doing some other things. So, uh, you're just gonna—it's just onward and up for upward from here. But you can check out the other shows on the network at evergreenpodcast.com. But but we'll have more information in the coming weeks on that. Good job, Phil. Your visionary oh. <laughs> entrepreneurship is paying off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Um, all right. Well, let's get to the uh, the fallout from Corano versus Cyborg, which was the last Strike Force event. Strike Force had some new stars on their hands. Uh, Fabricio Verdun had made his hexagon debut, dispatching Mike Quile, Mike Quile, ah, Mike Kyle with a quick first round guillotine choke. Gilbert Melendez had avenged the first loss of his MMA career when he defended his interim Strike Force lightweight title against Mitsuhiro Ishida via a third. 
third round TKO. Strike Force also had two new champions as Gegard Musassi had quickly knocked out Babalu Sobral to win the light heavyweight strap, while Chris Cyborg had beaten Gina Carano to become the first Strike Force women's featherweight champion in a very, very entertaining main event bout. Uh, as we discussed with MMA journalist Ben Folks on the, last week's episode, the Cyborg Carano fight was a historic uh, uh, milestone for both women's MMA and the sport of MMA overall. The event had drawn almost 14,000 fans into the arena as well as strong ratings on Showtime. This proved that women could draw and then deliver inside the cage, which was huge. That was a big deal. Again, this was a time where Dana, Dana White was saying he would never do women's fights. And, and you know, Strikeforce was taking the lead and uh, taking the mantle, really, from, from Elite XC and showing that, you know, women could carry the load. And we'd be hearing more from, from Cyborg, of course, but this was it for Gina Carano. She would never fight again and again. If you want to hear more about that, make sure you check out our interview with Ben Folks uh, that just ran. It's where we really get into depth, or we really get in depth and into kind of the backstory, why Gina walked away, that sort of thing. So some good stuff there. All right. So in August of 2009, it was announced that Fedor, who had just signed with Strikeforce, would be battling rising star Brett the Grim Rogers in an upcoming bout. The main event would be broadcasted on CBS, marking the primetime network debut for Strikeforce. A huge step up for the promotion. If you remember, they did for a time have an NBC show on Saturday night, but it was really like a highlights. It was shown at, you know, midnight or 1 a.m. or 2 a.m. or something like that. So this, as far as when people are actually awake and watching TV, uh, this was their their debut net, from a network perspective. And this event, as part of Fedor's deal, would be a co-promotional effort with M- M1. And I want to mention such a massive fight as Fedor could truly be Strikeforce's signature star. Uh, you know, him not speaking English would, would limit his appeal. And you remember Frank Shamrock at this point had not officially retired, but he was done. Uh, Kung Lee was had just relinquished the middleweight title. Uh, Josh Thompson, their lightweight champion, had been on the shelf with injuries. I mean, they just they were searching for a, a star. And Nick Diaz seemed to be the guy that could be that guy. But with his, you know, at that time, pot was not nearly as accepted as it is now. And he, you know, would test positive for for weed and that, you know, just how much could you really put on him? You know, he's not very well-spoken as far as his, uh, you know, as a penchant for, for cursing. He's not really the kind of guy that, that you want really leading the promotion per se. Uh, so, you know, there was really an opening there and Fedor not speaking English would limit his appeal, but his humble nature is really, really beastly performances inside the cage could overcome this. So would Fedor, I, this is an ironic state or question, but would Fedor eclipse Kimbo Slice's star on CBS, you have the <laughs> greatest heavyweight in the world. And then you're mentioning, you know, for a pro, for a well-known pro, you know, amongst the worst and, and yeah. obviously, be, you know, not having the experience, but he drew eyes, you know, he drew huge ratings on CBS. So would Fedor be able to beat that? I mean, this would be a, a huge test. So it would later be revealed that the Sears Center Arena in Hoffman Estates, Illinois, just outside Chicago, would play host to strike force Fedor versus Rogers on November 7th, 2009. Also around this time, interesting announcement, Strikeforce revealed that it had signed 47-year-old college football Hall of Famer Herschel Walker to a fighter contract. A longtime martial arts practitioner, Walker, had appeared at recent Strikeforce events and uh, had been asked about fighting, and he said he was up for it, and apparently he did feel like he was ready to step inside the hexagon, and so he was signed to a deal. No opponent was announced, but Walker would be training with K- with AKA. I think, I think he had about a six-month uh, training program 
to get ready. So, I mean, if anybody could get him ready, it would definitely be AKA. So very interesting signing. That's going to draw some main mainstream attention for sure. Uh, then in October, the full fight card was revealed. The main bouts on CBS would be Fedor versus Brett Rogers, Jake Shields versus Jason Mayhem Miller for the, uh, the, the vacant now vacant, uh, Strikeforce middleweight title, Gegard Musassi, the Strikeforce light heavyweight champion, would take on Rami Thierry Sokaju. Uh, and then Fabricio Verdun would also make a quick turnaround and would take on Antonio Bigfoot Silva. In preliminary bouts, Marlos Conan, or sorry, Marlos Kunin would take on Roxanne Modafferi. Mark Miller would was scheduled to take on D. Ray Davis, although this would be canceled, and we'll we'll talk about that a little bit at the end of the show. Christian Uflacker would take on Yanadis Noveas. Lewis Taylor would take on Nate Moore, and Jeff Kern, the Big Frog, would take on Dustin Neese. So some very notable fights on this card besides Fedor Rogers. Obviously, Shields and Mayhem was a big fight. Musasi was a star on the rise, taking on Sokaju, had made a name for himself with some big-time performances uh, in Pride. Verdun was an established star uh, who had really made a name for himself both in Pride and in the UFC, and he was getting himself in position for a heavyweight title shot, while Bigfoot was capable of shutting Shutting that down, and Bigfoot was a, a former Elite XC heavyweight champion, big-time puncher, of course, Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt as well. Very well-rounded and obviously a huge guy. Now, we've discussed this a bit previously, but the Strikeforce middleweight title had been vacated by Kung Lee so he could focus on his movie career. Now, this is the part that I don't really get. Uh, ironically, Kung would be back in Strikeforce less than a month and a half after this event to headline Evolution. So you have uh, uh, um, Alistair Overeem, who's held the Strikeforce heavyweight title since 2007. Here we are, you know, two years late. Or, man, I actually, I think he won it in 2006. If I, now that I think about it, I think it was 2006. So three years later, he hasn't defended the, the title and he hasn't really relinquished the belt and Coker hasn't pulled it from him. And yet Kung Lee, who had won the title from, from Frank the previous year, now he's going to give up the belt, but be back before end of year. That just doesn't really make any sense. Yeah, it was tough to follow the heavyweight picture in Strike Force around this time because Alistor just just didn't fight. And then, you know, with Kung Lee, he was going to go off and make a movie. He vacated. I don't know if there was more there and that maybe he didn't want to fight somebody or, or I don't know if there were some politics involved. Um, it was really unfortunate because, you know, Kung's movie career, he did do some films that I'm sure made him some money. But, you know, he never made it as sort of a big MMA uh, star in Hollywood, even though when he fought, he was like a Hollywood fighter because he was so dramatic in his real life performances. So it was, it was too bad. You know, he was kind of an older guy when he got into MMA. He probably should have just had like five, six straight years of just MMA, seeing how far he could go and then turn to Hollywood. So it's, you know, it's one of the stories of Strike Force. He eventually made it to UFC, of course, not the most impressive run there. Uh, but he was really good and really talented. But it's this un unevenness that we see with some of these Strike Force stars, some of the divisions, and uh, you know we sort of see it a little bit here here on this card as well. Yeah, there's no doubt. And we talked about this with Ben Folks a little bit that you know with Gina, she was she got some she got some offers, and it's like, well, I can either put my body on the line, my health on the line, and you know get paid for that, or I can, you know, make the same or better money and not get beat up as much. So, you know, Kung starts getting some movie offers and he's made a bunch of movies and I believe he's still uh, doing work at, uh, for, as, as a stunt, a stuntman, uh, you know, fight choreographer. And I believe he's still doing some acting too. It's not movies that are going to be making big premieres at this point, but 
you know, I believe he's still still doing that. So, you know, I think you can definitely question it. I I, I think I would have stuck with MMA just because there was only so much time on there. But again, you know, I wasn't in his in his position, and and I get it. So. Uh, but on the undercard, Jeff, the big frog, Curran, Lewis Taylor, Marlos Kunin, and Roxanne Modafari all stood out as named, names to watch. I did want to mention Kunin was originally supposed to match up with Cyborg for that, that newly won uh, featherweight title, but an in- injury sustained by the champ in a grappling tournament had scuttled that. So instead, Kunin was going to take on the recently signed Aaron Tuffell in a rematch with the winner getting the first title shot at Cyborg. Tuffle had won their first fight via KO. However, she got uh, she had to deal with some some issues, uh, some medical issues, and she had to pull out. And she was replaced by Roxanne Modafferi in another rematch. As Modafferi, uh, who was taken on the fight on about a week's notice, had won a split decision against Kunin in 2007. The idea being that whoever won that fight was going to be the first challenger for Cyborg's title. Uh, there was also speaking of Alistair Overeem, there was an update provided around this time. Uh, he was basically he was supposed to appear in Strike Force in 2009. He had signed a new contract, but just timing and and basically availability just had not worked out. However, it was assured that the Reem would reappear inside the hexagon in early 2010, likely to defend the belt against the winner of Fedor versus Rogers. Now he would be back in the cage, but it wouldn't be against one of those guys. And we'll talk more about that later, of course. It was also revealed, I touched on this earlier, but in late October, Spike TV announced that they would, along with the UFC, be counter-programming Fedor versus Rogers, showing a kind of greatest hits collection of sorts that would include fights like Randy Couture versus Rodrigo Noguera, Vitor Belfort versus Rich Franklin, BJ Penn versus Kenny Florian, and Anderson Silva versus Forrest Griffin. I, I, Josh, I don't know how you feel about this. I'm not a fan of counter-programming. I mean, why limit the audience? I mean... Even now, you you have uh, uh, AEW going against NXT on Wednesday nights, and I understand. You know, I loved the Monday Night Wars. I mean, they were so exciting. But we are living in a different time from a technological standpoint. There's no reason to do that. I mean, I watch AEW live. Or actually, I watch it on a slight delay because I don't get home uh, until late on Wednesday night, so I, I watch it that night. And then if there's anything I see on NXT that looks like, oh man, I got to watch that, I'll, I'll go back and watch it. But they're both recorded. And I'll go back. So why why split the viewership? I just why limit the audience? I don't understand it. To me, it's stupid and counterproductive. Well, clearly, Phil, you don't have the dog eat dog mentality that Dana White does. I, you know, I did, don't. Maybe that's where he's at, <laughs> and I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he did sell a business for four billion dollars for crying out loud. No, um, I think that uh, there's pros and cons here. I, I certainly understand the business perspective, and you know, as much as Dana White hates. Uh, the fact that Fedor never fought for the U for the UFC, um, you know, he, he and he he criticized Fedor so much and, and tried to downplay him and act like he wasn't one of the greatest of all time. He really was working hard to get people not to watch Fedor in prime time, and this was something that he would he would do with with all of these shows. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's a mentality. It's like, you know, we're the only thing that matter. You have to choose. It's certainly a mental characteristic trade of that type of business person. But I agree with you that as a fan, it just makes you mad. It just makes you annoyed. It doesn't really do anything because, you know, you're going to figure out a way to watch everything probably in due time. You know, along those lines uh, from the Wrestling Observer about the issue of writing counter-programming, Uh, What Dave Meltzer wrote in the Wrestling Observer at that time was, 
UFC's attempt at counter-programming didn't prove as successful as in the past. UFC has always put on replays of past major pay-per-view events, including the prior CBS shows, usually doing a 1.2 rating, considered very strong for Spike for using old footage. But they were down 25% from usual, doing a 0.9 rating and a 1.2 and 1.2 million viewers with a custom-made show featuring the television debuts of four recent never-before-seen pay-per-view main event matches. So so they tried to put on sort of this bonanza show, and it didn't do as well. So I think that it probably backfired because, you know, people could watch a lot of UFC at this time. They're only going to have a moment in time to watch Fedor in prime time. Yeah, I mean, that's all, that's all very valid and... I mean, I, I still stand by what I've said. Like, I, I just don't see the point in it, but I also understand. I mean, I do see the point. I understand. I just don't agree with it. And, but, you know, like you said, I I haven't sold a uh, a business for, you know, $4 billion. So, I mean, what do I? <laughs> I, will, I will say this, Phil. Okay, I'm, I'm older than you. So, you probably don't understand this concept. But was it WrestleMania 4? Um Pay-per-view, Sunday, WWE, I'm probably, you know, teenage, young teenager. And freaking WCW put Sting versus yeah. Ric Flair. Clash of the Champions. On Clash of the Champions on no. TBS. Okay, okay, okay. But before you get too far into that, to be fair, <laughs> to be fair. Okay. Vince McMahon with WWF had decided when uh, w or then then NWA wasn't WCW yet. They wanted to run Starcade on Thanksgiving night. They traditionally had always run Starcade on Thanksgiving night. Vince McMahon comes in and says to the cable operators or to the pay per view operators, if you run that against my now he's starting a, a Survivor Series, mm-hmm. he started up Survivor Series just to counter program uh, Starcade. Yeah, and then he says if you run Starcade. I, against my show, not only do you not get, uh, you know, you not get that show, you also don't get WrestleMania. So he not only counter-programmed, he also threatened and like held up. And really, that would never fly today because the backlash on social media and from the fan base would be so strong they would never be able to pull off something like that today. Right. But he was counter. So and and hey, Vince and Dana. While I don't think they're friends, they're they're friendly and they have a mutual respect. I mean, they're cut from the same cloth. Yeah. So, you know, and, and that's just not Scott Coker's way. That's just yeah. not, it's just not, I've talked with him enough. That is not how he thinks. So I, I know I cut you off there, but yeah, the counter-programming has been going on in combat sports, which I know personally not a combat sport, but it's been going on in, in these, you know, these action sports that we enjoy so much for a long, long time. I, I, there's some positives that have come from it, like the Monday night wars, but at the same time, there's no re- reason for it, especially today. There's no reason for it because of uh, TiVo or what? Well, I don't know if TiVo's still around, but you know that 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 technology. DVR. Yeah, DVR. Yeah. So yeah, it's probably a throwback because you know back in those days, you you know if you only had one TV and one VCR, you had to figure out what you were going to record. We didn't have all these options digitally to record multiple things at one time. And obviously, when you know when you're the front runner, when you're the leader, when you're Dana White. You probably don't need to be looking back. It just brings you down. So he probably should have just taken the higher road and said, let people watch that show 
I don't care. We're still number one. That's not what he did. But we also know he's he's he can be uh, yeah. petty, petty. From and a that's yeah, he absolutely can. And that's not his style. And and like Vince, he does best when he's got a fight on his hands. So he'd go looking for a fight, creating a you know creating a monster you know to to take on. So. All right, let's get back to it. So uh, jumping into what was going on in the rest of the MMA world at that time, uh, Bellator wasn't running its events at, the, at that moment. They were on break. It was Their season was over. Uh, so we'll talk more about them in the coming episodes. No changes in the UFC champions. BJ Penn, still lightweight champion. GSP, still on top of the welterweight division. Anderson Silva, still the man at middleweight. Leonardo Machida, still the light heavyweight champion. And Brock Lesnar, still the undisputed heavyweight champion the closest ufc event to what we're talking about tonight was ufc 105 couture versus vera which took place in manchester in the uk on november 14 2009 a week after fedor versus rogers the event drew 16,993 fans for a gate of two million dollars while also drawing an average of 2.9 million viewers on spike tv on the undercard, Alexander Gustafson made his UFC debut, dispatching Jared Hammond via knockout in only 41 seconds. On the main card, Michael Bisping TKO'd Dennis Kang with knees and punches. Dan Hardy took a unanimous decision victory over Mike Swick. And in the main event, Randy, the natural couture, beat Brandon Vera by unanimous decision. So remember that 2.9 million viewers was the average on Spike TV. And we'll talk about how that how that fared in comparison to how Fedor versus Rogers did on network TV. There was a challengers event the night before Fedor versus Rogers. It was at the Save Mart Center in Fresno, which had become a favorite arena for Strikeforce. They held challengers Gurgel versus Evangelista. It drew 4,157 fans, which is a really good crowd for a challengers event. Uh, it did have some notable notable names on it, although they may not have been all that notable back then. Luke Rockhold, Josh's favorite all-time what? fighter. What? You mean to tell me they put Luke Rockhold back on a, on a house, challengers on a back, house show in Fresno? Essentially, essentially on a house show back. Yeah, because it's not they had televised. Prime time. Oh my goodness. What? Yeah, they couldn't even fly him into Chicago and at least put him on the undercard. Yeah, I can't believe Scott Coker. And, and he actually had more experience than some of the fighters on the undercard. So, for what it's worth. Uh, Luke Rockhold moved to 6-1 and one with a rear naked choke win over Jesse Taylor, who was a former uh, UFC fighter and was on The Ultimate Fighter. All Rockhold's fights at this point had ended decisively. He had, uh, all seven of his fights had ended in a finish, with six of those coming for him. Uh, and then also Shane Del Rosario got a rare Omoplata submission win over Brandon Cash. And in, in the main event, Billy Evangelista advanced his record to 10-0-1 with a unanimous decision win over a very tough George Gurgel. I don't understand why we don't have guys like Billy Evangelista and Luke Rockhold fighting on main strike force cards. Don't really quite understand that, but it is what it is. All right, let's get to the event details themselves. Strike Force Fedor versus Rogers took place on November 7, 2009 at the Sears Center outside Chicago, drawing 11,512 fans via CBS, an estimated 4,040 Four million, excuse me, four thousand. God, that'd be awful. Four million and forty thousand viewers tuned in on average throughout the event, with a peak viewership of around five and a half million fans during the main event. So again, the Spike TV event a week later, uh, the headline by Randy the Natural Couture drew an average of two point nine million, while this drew an average of four million. So advantage Strikeforce for sure. Although Strikeforce was on network TV and Spike TV was on basic cable, so there was a difference in how many fans it was available to. You know, it's interesting. They were in Chicago for for the show. I I thought I heard some CM Punk chants no. during the shi- during the Shields Are Mayhem Miller match. I thought I heard it. It was Chicago. I, it was I heard it some was chants. it was a boring fight. 
It, it was possible, right? I, I guess it's it definitely would be possible. Chicago, absolutely. But was Punk was Punk? I don't even know if Punk was in WWE at that time. I I think so. This is two thousand nine. So I'll have to while we're while we're kind of going through this, I'll have to quickly look that up. But um, yeah, I, I, I certainly did not hear any fight forever chance. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I don't think so. Oh, right, so okay, yeah, yeah, he was in uh, he was in WWE CW in two thousand six. So he was a world heavyweight champion in two thousand nine, and then going into the Straight Edge Society thing. So that was uh, great stuff. November twenty seventh. So he was still a face, a baby face, and I think the heavyweight champion or or somewhere close to. But I think he was still a baby face when this happened. So I guess it would make sense that they might actually be chanting his name. So. I heard yeah. it. I'm telling you. Anyway, okay. we'll get there. We'll get to that fight. Okay. I right, we'll get to that. We'll, we'll get. We'll get there. All right. So as far as the commentators go, we got Mauro Ronaldo, Gus Johnson, and Frank Shamrock all back on the call. So finally, some real consistency on commentary for Strike Force, which was nice. Uh, and then of course, Jimmy Lennon Jr. is back doing the ring announcing. The entire main card is available on UFC Fight Pass plus the last fight on the undercard, which is uh, Kunin versus Motiferi. Very slick video package to open things up. Open things up. Really built Fedor up as this really big time star, but also pushed Brett Rogers as a real danger and a real threat. So I thought that was, I thought that was pretty cool. All right. So in the undercard again, no video other than Kunin Motiferi. Uh, in the opening bout, 170 pounds, Christian Uflacker defeated Jonatas Noveas via unanimous decision. Middleweight Nate Moore defeated Lewis Taylor via submission by come by way of punches at 324 of the second round. Both these guys will be back in strike force in the future. Taylor actually won the uh, the PFL I think middleweight tournament in 2018, so he's gone on to some pretty big things. Uh, at 185 pounds, Shamar Bailey defeated John Koloski uh, via unanimous decision. Koloski was a Ultimate Fighter season six alum, while Bailey would go on to appear on Tough season 13. And then at 150 pounds of catchweight bout, Jeff Curran defeated Dustin Nice via verbal submission uh, coming by way of rib injury at 139 of the first round. Curran is a name that you might recognize uh, both because of Jeff and then his cousin, Pat. Curran was coming off four straight losses to Uriah Faber, Mike Brown, Joseph Benavides, and Takia Mizugaki. Those were all in WEC. This was when WEC, I believe, was under the banner of the UFC but was still active and putting on the absolute best fights you could find at 135, 145, and, and maybe even 155. This is where uh, Jose Aldo had really, you know, come to to prominence. Of course, Faber, the other guys that I just mentioned. So this was that was a big deal. I mean, he was coming off four losses, but they were against the best of the best. Uh, Curran was a UFC and Pride veteran. I actually did a fair amount of work with Curran through his his then management, uh, Sucker Punch Entertainment, run by Brian Butler, uh, and I, I did some work with them. So I got to do some a little bit of PR for the Big Frog, and uh, he was a pioneer in the bantamweight division and really an important figure in MMA history that I think gets over overlooked because he was a guy at a time, again, where there just was not a lot going on in 135. In fact, he actually gave an interview. We signed a two-fight deal with Strike Force, and in the interview he was saying, like, I, I'm glad I get to fight on a big show, but but Scott Cooker has no plans for a 135 division. So, you know, I kind of like I don't know what I'm doing here, but I, I it's at least I get to keep my name and my face in the spotlight. So kind of a, kind of interesting. Uh, nice, also very experienced journeyman, came in five pounds over the featherweight limit, but being the pro that he is, Curran took the fight. So this uh, this fight descriptions from MMA Weekly. Both fighters open with some nasty leg kicks as Curran stays aggressive. Nice lands a good body kick, and Curran moves in for the clinch. Curran lands two knees to the body, and Nice winces in pain immediately and taps out, stopping the fight. Uh, 
Neither fighter, despite again Curtin signing a two fight deal, would neither fighter would appear in Strike Force again. All right, we're in the the main event of the undercard, so to speak. At 145 pounds, Marlos Kunin defeated Roxanne Modafferi via submission, coming by way of armbar at 105 of the first round. As mentioned earlier, this was a rematch as Modafferi, 13 and four at the time, had won a previous bout between the two, but she would be moving up in weight to 145 pounds for this, and it would also be short notice. And she was flying in from Japan, so the deck seemed to be stacked pretty pretty high against her. Marlowe's 17-2 trained with Golden Glory, which is known for producing high-level strikers like Alistair Overeem, but Kunin was known more for her submissions. She truly, she's not a name that gets mentioned a lot today. When you, know, when you talk about the, the all-time female greats, you're going to hear Cyborg and Nunez and, uh, you know, Ronda Rousey and, you know, those types of names. But this at this point, Kunin was, was one of the best female fighters out there, so she really should get a lot more uh, a lot more due than she does. But I, I before we get into the fight, I do have to mention this. In discussing Coonan, Gus Johnson said, once re- quote, once referred to as the female Rickson Gracie. <laughs> it's Hickson, Gus. Like when you, Portuguese, you know, Brazilian names, you say they start with an R, they're pronounced with an H. I mean, yeah. come on, man. Like, so once, you know, Gus, he, he I, you know, he's, he's improving and he's, Oh, advanced guard. He's actually starting to call some of the actual moves and you know that sort of thing. But then he says something like Rickson Gracie, who is, I mean, probably you say he's the best fighter of all time. He, you know, he never fought in UFC, never fought in. I don't think he ever fought in Pride. I think you know, I think he did fight in Pride, but he was you know too early on, and and you know said he picked he picked his spots and all this stuff. But certainly the most talented Gracie. I think everybody says he was the guy that they really wanted to build the Gracie name around uh, instead of Hoist and for whatever reason ended up not being Hickson. But uh, underground fans, like true hardcore MMA fans, know who Hickson Gracie is and what a big deal he was. So that was kind of a, a bit of a bit of a slap in the face and, and it, you know, uh, not on purpose, but a slap in the face. That's the kind of thing, however, uh, they should have prepped him for, right? Isn't there somebody who says... Hey, Gus, we're going over some of these names, so we need you uh, for 30 minutes. I mean, I feel like like it's it's a lot f- for him to know, and if he's not naturally curious about wanting to learn the history of MMA, I don't know. I feel like somebody should have primed him for that, but you're right. It makes it look like he's just there mouthing the words but doesn't have feeling for what he's doing. Yeah, and I, I mean, obviously we have no idea if he had run that name by, you know, anybody or anything like that. And if he just kind of pulled it out, like we, you know, obviously we don't know that, but not a, not a good look, not a good look. So, um, but as we get into the fight itself, Coonan lands a nice right hand that drops Moda Ferry, who then ends up in her guard. It was over pretty quickly after that Coonan doing what she wanted from her back, launching, latching onto an arm bar and eliciting the very quick tap. So really nice, really nice fight for Coonan. Yeah. Coonan, I agree with you. Uh, certainly right there uh, with, the best MMA female fighters of all time. Um, she certainly, you know, is among them, if not in that top tier. She she's right in that conversation, sort of at the at you know hovering at that next level. Uh, really good. What a submission artist she was. So many good submissions, and uh, I don't know. She she just was uh, so tac- tactical and so skilled and she smooth. Just, she was so smooth the way she she just knew what she was doing. It was very clear. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I thought this was a, a good display by her. I was annoyed that 
that Frank Shamrock called her Roxy, or actually referring to Roxanne Modafferi, calling her Roxy. I thought it was Frank being a little too casual with these, um, you know, MMA fighters. But, um, you know, I think that uh, Conan, she did she did a great job, and it was quick, made quick work, and she had some battles with, uh, with Cyborg, and I think that she definitely needs to be in that conversation as, you know, among the top 10 female fighters of all time. Yeah, for sure. I think that's 100%. Uh, Motoferry would compete one more time in Strike Force on a challenger car- challenger's card, losing to Sarah Kaufman via slam. She's gone on to make her presence felt in Invicta and the UFC, where she's still competing. Uh, this would set up a title fight for Conan as she would take on Cyborg in January. I am excited to cover that one, but we have, ar- uh, have arrived at the main card. So in the opening bout, Fabricio Verdun took on and defeated Antonio Bigfoot Silva via unanimous decision. Fabricio was 12-4-1 coming into this one, was coming off winning the Abu Dhabi World Championships just a month and a half earlier, which made him a two-time champion. Uh, In MMA, he had won four of his last five, including a quick submission win over Mike Kyle that I mentioned earlier in his Strikeforce debut at Carano versus Cyborg. Prior to that win, he'd lost to Junior Junior Dos Santos in the UFC, earning his exit from the promotion but had beaten Brandon Vera and Gabriel Gonzaga's via punch it, excuse me, Gabriel Gonzaga via punches in each bout, uh, in each bout previously to that. So he'd beaten them two straight. And I, uh, I saw Gabriel Gonzaga at a home Depot in Massachusetts a few years ago and, uh, didn't have the guts to go up to him and say hi, but yeah, <laughs> uh, Bigfoot was a big signing for strike force. He had won the elite XC heavyweight title with a win over UFC vet, Justin Eilers in 2008. However, Silva had tested positive for steroids after the fight. His manager claimed that the test resulted from Big, Bigfoot's use of Novadex, a testosterone booster he was taking to raise his low testosterone levels, a symptom of acromegaly. Uh, that's gigantism for those that aren't aware. It is essentially a, uh, you have a tumor on your pituitary gland that where the pituitary gland, which regulates uh, how much, uh, basically how much a person grows. And, um, and so that was, uh, that, that was something that, that Bigfoot had to deal with. That's why he has the dimensions of his head and his feet were so big and all that stuff. Regardless, Bigfoot had circumvented his suspension and gone over to Japan against the, the council of the California state athletic commission, which had put out the, uh, the suspension. And, uh, he fought twice in Sengoku winning against less than top tier competition. In fact, while Bigfoot did have some wins over notable fighters, his level of competition was definitely not at Verdun's level. Hey, uh, Phil, uh, before we get in the action here, can we have a quick conversation about Bigfoot and where where he stands? Uh, I will readily admit I was never a fan of Antonio Bigfoot Silva. I was never excited to see him fight. Um, I never really thought he was uh, somebody that I could root for, and I'm not sure why. Um, I, I think that, he, you know, he had some wins eventually. I think he eventually did KO Fedor, you know, a little bit later. But... Um, you know, where does he fit in, uh, in your mind, in terms of the, the strike force heavyweight grades? He eventually obviously fought in UFC and, you know, he did have some great fights and some great wars, but there was something to me about him that just was, I just didn't, didn't I couldn't root for him. I just didn't like him um, as a fighter. I didn't like his style that much. And I, it showed a little bit here in the, in the Verdum fight, but what's your take on him? How does, where does he rank? Yeah. I mean, to me, he was one of those guys that just never really he did pull off some big wins, um, but he never really was what I would consider to be an elite fighter. And he's also, uh, I mean, he did, like I said, he did, you, you said he beat Fedor. I mean, he definitely pulled off some, some big wins in his career. There's no doubt about that. Um, but yeah, like I said, I don't think he ever really 
really ever hit it big. And um, I'm, I'm looking up his his record real quick as we talk. I mean, he's got a 19 and 12 record in MMA with one no contest. He's riding one, two, three, four, five, five straight losses at this point. So, and he hasn't fought in MMA since 2017. So he's he's pretty much done. Um, but, but you know, he, sorry, go ahead. Let me ask you this, and and this is probably hard to answer, but how much of his push or his his run, you know, among the top, had to do with his unique look? If he if he didn't look like that, and he was just a guy, uh, do you think we'd still be we would even I mean, know he, who he was. definitely had a unique look and i think yeah i think that contributed to it i mean but like yeah i mean so he beat cabbage carrera you know early on he beat rico rodriguez by split decision former ufc heavyweight champion he beat justin eilers who was tough um for the elite xc heavyweight title and then you know like we said gets gets uh test positive for a steroid after the, the bout he did go on to beat arlovsky uh, he did go on to, to TKO Fedor. He beat Travis Brown. He beat Alistair Overeem. So, I mean, he does have some big wins, but he also, you know, like I said, he's lost his only win in, in, in MMA since 2013, since that Alistair win was so Pulele. Uh, other than that, he's lost every fight or had a, um, uh, a, a no contest, which that no contest was a no contest because he tested positive for elevated uh, levels of testosterone. So, yeah. You know, I just think he was a good heavyweight that had a unique look and and more often than not would either kill or be killed. Like he he got I mean, you look at TKO, KO, TKO, I mean, so many of his fights ended in decisive fashion. So that's the kind of guy that you definitely want on your, you know, your roster because he's going to provide fireworks. But yeah, I don't think he was ever that great. And he was a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt. So like, why wasn't he doing, you know, he's so big. If he can get you to the mag, he'll probably smother you and just, you know, arm bar, you give up an arm bar just to get him off you. So, I, yeah, I, I think he got more chances because of that. And honestly, he's one of those guys now that I worry about because in his 12 losses, you want to take a guess at how many he lost by TKO or KO? <laughs> um, 11? 10. 10? Yeah. yeah. And then that's not counting. He's gone on to do bare-knuckle boxing uh, since then. He lost by knockout against Gabriel Gonzaga. I watched that bout. Yeah, I remember watching that in October of 2019, and I think that's the last time that he's competed uh, in anything. I've seen his name mentioned as signing with different uh, promotions and stuff like that. But, yeah, he, yeah, he signed with Tora MMA, which I want to say was in a, a Italy, if I remember correctly, and he was supposed to fight in October 2020. However, the bout was canceled the week of the fight. He then signed with the Arena Fighting Championship, um, and he was supposed to fight a guy named Chris Barnett in December of 2020, but the whole event was postponed due to multiple COVID cases. So he's still, you know, he's still trying to fight, but I, I worry about him from a, like a CTE standpoint, eating that many knockouts and in the heavyweight division. That's another thing. Like you're getting punched in the head by 260 pound guys and 10 of them are putting your lights out, not including the bare knuckle knockout, not including all the times he's gotten his bell rung and training and all that stuff. So I, I actually, I don't think he should be fighting anymore. Uh, you know, he's tested positive for elevated testosterone more than once. So he's got a lot of black marks in his career. Yes. He's got some big wins. He was obviously a talented fighter. 15 of his 19 wins coming by knockout, you know, TKO or KO, but it's got a lot of, lot of, lot of marks against him too. Yeah, well, um, it's sad that he still has to fight, quite frankly, yeah. having fought in the UFC so many times that he wasn't able to make enough to just relax this, this second half of his life. You know? Yeah, but, it's unfortunate. Oh well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
All right, well, let's get to the action. Uh, Mara and Frank were trying to figure out some audio issues on air while Bigfoot was entering the cage. Either that or the UFC published the wrong feed on Fight Pass, but it was kind of weird to hear them counting off and, can you hear me, and stuff like that. But, uh, man, you know, it was weird seeing Bigfoot looking so young and thin for for a giant. <laughs> I mean, he he, he looked uh, just very young, but he landed a punch that dropped Verdun pretty early on in the first round. Fabricio took another solid shot while on his back, was able to persevere. I mean, what a chin Fabricio Verdun has, but... Uh, he was able to get back to his feet, even landed a solid overhand right of his own a little later on. Bigfoot hurt Verdun a few more times in the first, but Fabricio was able to survive due to that chin. I mean, I, it was a great first round. Mm-hmm. I was really entertained by it. Yeah, Verdun showed incredible poise. I, I, a lot of guys would have quit or just panicked, but, you know, he got rocked, but um, he didn't quit. And he, his mind was still there. He figured out another way. Um, and it's it kind of goes to how he's such a jiu-jitsu mindset and how he fights. He fights kind of defensively, but he is a survivor, and he's very deceptive. And uh, he did a good job sort of just surviving and staying away from Bigfoot at the right perfect time. And, and Bigfoot, he made a tactical error. Now, I know that you don't want to go to the ground with Verdum because you know he's such a submission artist, but... Bigfoot had him hurt, and he kind of stood up, and he kind of looked at Verdum, and Verdum got up, and then it's a stand-up fight again, and maybe Bigfoot thinks that was his best chance, but, you know, I've seen Verdum fight so many times, he's got a way of of almost flopping, um, you know, getting hit at the tail end of the punch, and going to the ground, and kind of lulling you to the mat, and, uh, you know, he's just such a skilled, smart, smart fighter, and, uh, I think you Bigfoot, you got him down and you got him in a position. You just got to go for it because uh, Verdum, he's too tricky, you know, and, and we would see the, coming up that Bigfoot just is the pattern with him. He just gasses out. Yeah. Yeah, it, it definitely. It shows up. So uh, in the second round, Verdun began to impose his game more as Silva really inexplicably switched up strategies and tried out the ground with the Abu Dhabi champion. And Silva looked like he was getting more tired, as you mentioned, although Verdun didn't look super fresh either. And then in the final round, I mean, Bigfoot, I just think, was gassed, like you said. And Verdun would take him down and pound him seemingly at will. And this was really a story of the second and the third rounds, and Verdun's conditioning seemed to be the difference. And lots of respect between the two after the fight, and Verdun took home the 29-28 to 28, uh, scores across the boards. So. You know, we talk a lot about, uh, or I've talked about Josh Thompson and how happy he looks when he fights, how totally into it. Uh, Verdum has a little bit of those qualities that he, he always sort of looks like he's he's enjoying himself in there, even when he's getting plastered. <laughs> you know, sort of feel like he's going to come out of this. He's just, he's just in control of everything that he's doing. And I never watch Verdum thinking, oh my God, this poor guy's going to get crushed. Like, it's never like that. I'm like, this guy's going to figure out a way to win, or if he loses, he's going to give it his all. He, he Do you agree, Phil, he fights like a smaller guy? Like, he fights like he, not maybe a lightweight, maybe a little bit bigger than that, but he's very fluid and flexible yeah. for being I, I, such a all, big that, dude. Yeah, that's all the jiu-jitsu. You know, that's yeah. all the jiu-jitsu training. I think, I mean, jiu-jitsu is really a small man's, way to be able to deal with large i mean just ask hoist gracie that's what the the, you know brazilian jiu-jitsu specifically was designed to do so i think it's kind of has the movements it captures the movements of a smaller guy 
And yeah, it just helps him be more fluid. He also looks like he's always having a great time in there for sure. And he's known for doing that like Joker face. And um, as we discussed with with Ben Folks, that after he tapped out Fedor, that they had to keep telling him to quiet down and his team to quiet down while they were trying to do the press conference because they were singing songs and having a blast with uh, actor Forrest Whitaker and stuff like that. So he he's always having a great time, whether you know he's in the cage or he's in the locker room. He just enjoys fighting, enjoys competing, obviously, and he's what 43 or something like that at this point and he's still competing at such a high level so yeah he's uh he he's definitely somebody that should be mentioned as as one of the greats and yeah 43 years old i I nailed that one but yeah um just just one of the greats for sure so i i think he's somebody that um should be mentioned amongst that that group even if he's not the greatest but he's he's definitely up there so all right, uh, but this win would set up a huge fight against Fedor Emelianenko for Verdun the following year, while Bigfoot would also be back inside the Hexagon in 2010 against Andre Arlovsky. The Strike Force heavyweight division was finally, finally getting some semblance of order and coming back to life. So there was an interview right after this fight uh, with Fedor's people. There was his manager and then his, um, I forget her name, but his, you know she's, the, she's the always... Tran- the translator? Yeah, she's always there to translate. And uh, this was really good. This was like, a, you know, like Rocky Four or something. I mean, this was like so mis- there's so much mystique. You know, it's like he's the last emperor. He's the Russian. He's speaking through the translator. There's so much intrigue. And, you know, his, his manager through the translator is saying that he doesn't like to get distracted. Uh, he likes to focus. So he doesn't do media interviews before a fight. And they did a lot with the fact that Fedor could not speak English. <laughs> Just allowing these people to talk for him was was very pro wrestling, and it built up the the intrigue. I don't know if you caught any of that, but it made me think, "Wow, this guy's mysterious." Yeah, no, I, I think it did a good job building up his mystique for sure. If you didn't know who he was, you're like who is this guy that doesn't speak English and doesn't do interviews, you know, right before the fight, and then. You know, it just seems like the dad bod, you know, before that existed and all that stuff. They did a great job building him up as the mystique. Yeah, I think you're just the intrigue and the mystique around The Last Emperor for sure was was on full display. And I think they did a great job with that. All right. 205 pound bout. Gegard Mousasi, the Strikeforce light heavyweight champion, defeated Sokuju via TKO coming by way of punches at 343 of the second round. I don't know why this was a, a non-title fight, but it was. Uh, these two were slated to fight not long before this card in Dream over in Japan, but Musashi had to pull out. Instead, Sokuji would face <sighs> Bob Sapp. <laughs> but more on hey. that in a second. <laughs> Bob Sapp. Oh, uh, let me say something here. Uh, in doing my research, I did see the reason that this was a three-round fight was because they were worried that it would go too far over the two-hour time slot oh. on CBS. Oh. And uh, they knew that they had the Jake Shields <laughs> and, uh, and guaranteed uh, five, 20, guaranteed 25 minute fight there. So, yeah. Right. And so they made it a non-title just so that it would be uh, fewer rounds, which um, I don't know if they should really be deciding whether fights are title ones based yeah. off of no, the no, amount of time. No, but that was, was what I read. Yeah. Yeah. No, they shouldn't. Um, but the, uh, the 20, 24 year old Musassi at 25, two and one was of course coming off. His, uh, his light heavyweight title went over Babalu. Uh, he'd lost an exhibition match to Fedor in late August via first-round armbar, but that was just that, an exhibition. I mean, you know, he's fighting at 185. Uh, Fedor is a heavyweight. I also saw that Fedor had an exhibition win over Shinya Aoki 
um, who who appeared in the cage after the fight tonight. Aoki's 155er, so mm-hmm. you know again exhibition. But I, I don't know what they were doing over there. It was an M1, so they're probably just giving them a bit of a workout and giving the fans a thrill. But they um, were doing they were doing Ben Askren and Jake Paul yeah, before yeah, Ben yeah. Askren and Jake Paul were doing it. There you go. There you go. <laughs> uh, in legit MMA bouts. Musashi had won 13 straight, including the Dream Middleweight Grand Prix. Sokoju was in a much different place in his career. He only had 11 pro fights at that point, so his experience paled in comparison to the champ. He had burst onto the scene with back-to-back wins over Antonio Rogerio Noguera and Ricardo Arona in pride. However, since that time, he'd only gone 3-3 and with losses to Lyoto Mishida, Luis Kane, and Babalu, while his only wins had been a leg injury over Kazuhiro Nakamura in the UFC and wins in Dream over... Bob Sapp, and <laughs> ironically, Jan Norte, who had beaten Sapp in Strike Force, and thankfully the only bout for both of those two inside the hexagon. How ironic is that? Is that this light heavyweight had beaten these two super heavyweights who had fought each other in their only bout inside Strike Force? How crazy small is world. that? Yeah, small, small world. world. But definitely a gap in experience, and as we would find out in talent between Musasi and Sokoju. Uh, the African assassin, as he was called, Sokoju had Dan Henderson in his corner as he was a member of Team Quest. Musasi, just as usual, just so calm in the cage, very, cage, very Fedor-esque in, in that regard. It almost looked bored at times, and then you'd start landing strikes, and you could see the same thing as Fedor. You'd see the, the eyes light up and the teeth grit and all that stuff. And Sokoju ate some good shots early on before getting a nice judo takedown, but Musasi reversed it soon after, and during the fight, Shamrock ref- referenced that it was a judo trip takedown attempt by Sokoju that had torn up his knee in training for their Baroni fight in Strikeforce, which I had completely forgotten about when I interviewed Frank to talk about that fight. That's when he told me about that, and I had completely forgotten about that. But uh, if you haven't, we've interviewed Frank twice for this show, so make sure you go back and check those out in the archives. Just absolutely fascinating discussions, if I do say so myself. Uh, but towards the end of the first round, Musassi got a takedown that I don't think I've ever seen in MMA before. Uh, he, he was on his back with Sokoju standing and kind of like scissored his legs in between Sokoju's and tripped and then like pushed him over and then rolled forward at the same time to get top position. Super impressive. I don't think I've ever seen that in MMA before. So uh, very smooth, competitive first round, but I, I'd give the nod to the champ. That was an incredible first round. Musasi showed shades of Nick Diaz to me. He was pawing at him. He was using his long reach. He was fearless. He didn't really show any respect at all. It was a different kind of aggression for Musasi. And I, I had not seen him fight like this before. His his confidence was off the chart. Uh, I mean, he looked like he could hang with Anderson Silva in this round. I mean, he was so good and just so in control of everything he was doing with his body. And that leg trip, come on. What the heck was that? That was was smooth. Unreal. I mean, it's like he won the fight right there just psychologically. The fact that he was on his back and was able to take this guy down with just a little bit of, you know, leg movement. I've never seen that before either. Just wow. It was unreal. Well, I'm glad that it wasn't only me that felt like saw that and was like, oh, I've never seen that before. So that was, uh, I'm pretty stoked about that because I was like, <laughs> if Josh comes in with like five references that of, of that being used, I'm going to feel like an idiot. So glad that it wasn't just me. But yeah, that was pretty amazing. <laughs> um, it did, you know, I will say um, uh, Anderson Silva did pull off like a scissor leg lock in pride now that I'm, now that I'm thinking about it. But I think that was more of like a flying one where he kind of like did like a low drop kick. 
Yeah, he did like a yeah, yeah, yeah. He did like this really cool low drop kick, and and caught the leg and caught it into a heel heel hook. I'll have to send you that uh, yeah. that link because that's an amazing amazing finish as well. So, wow. all right. But in the second round, there was more back and forth action with Musasi really teeing off on the feet. Sokuju got a takedown but wasn't able to do anything with it. Musasi reversed and started dropping some really heavy leather leather onto his opponent from the top, and Sokuju just couldn't handle it. And the fight referee finally stepped in and stopped it. Yeah, Musashi, he was just badass here. He just looked like the king of the world. Like, he was yeah. unbeatable. So yeah. good here. Yeah, untouchable. Uh, but this would be it for Sokuju and Strikeforce. He he last fought in MMA, excuse me, in 2017. And uh, seems seems to have left the sport with a middling 19-18 and 18 record. He did take on Mighty Mo and Bare Knuckle in 2019, losing by TKO. Musashi, of course, would stay with Strikeforce, would take on King Mo in defense of his title in 2010. We'll be talking about that. All right, we're at the co-main event, 185 pounds. Jake Shields taking on and defeating Jason Mayhem Miller of a unanimous decision to win the vacant Strikeforce middleweight title. These two, they knew each other well. They were friendly, had even trained together a bit just six months prior to this bout. And Jake Shields talked about that in the uh, the pre-fight video package. Miller, 22-6, and six, was coming off a no contest with Jacare Souza for the Dream Middleweight title, which ended when Mayhem threw a glancing kick while Jacare was on the mat drawing blood. Uh, it was an illegal strike, and, and the blood just wouldn't stop, so they stopped the fight. Uh, before that, Mayhem had won five of his previous six, with Souza providing him his only loss in that stretch. It's also worth mentioning that Mayhem was the host of Bully Beatdown on MTV at this point, so he, he was a, a mainstream star. I mean, this was a guy that was going to draw eyeballs. Uh, Shields had won 12 straight coming in, including his win over Robbie Lawler at Strike Force Shields versus Lawler back in June. Uh, Shields had... had had some some pretty big wins during that stretch with the Lawler victory as well as wins over former UFC middleweight champion Dave Manet, Carlos Condit, Yushin Okami, Mike Pyle, Nick Thompson, and Paul Daly. Uh, six of his last seven wins had come in by way, had come by way of first round submission. So this was an opportunity for Shields to cement himself as an MMA star. All right, let's get to the fight itself. Mayhem, mayhem. Oh, Josh, I got to know what you think about his his entrance. You just got to love him. He comes out in this white choir robe with like angelic music playing. Then the bass drops and techno just fills the arena. And he's got a bunch of dancing girls decked out in purple. They start gyrating. Mayhem joins in. He's dancing. I mean, it was it was mayhem to a T. Did you did you did you yeah, catch yeah. that? I had flashbacks to in your house with flash yeah. funk yeah, walking yeah, to yeah. the ring. Uh, yeah, you know, it, it was good. You know, he's got he had the pinkish purplish hair you know yeah, and he's yeah. he's working it dancing it was it was the kind of thing that really made you love scott coker and strike force because it really wasn't something you'd see in the ufc and it was yeah. something that was different and so yeah i mean i like that it is tv why not you never know who's yeah. watching so yep. do it and that was the that was the japanese influence they would do those types of entrances and pride and dream and that sort of thing so uh, and Mayhem would do those those types of entr- entrances there, so uh, made a lot of sense. Uh, M- Morrow had a quote on Mayhem that I had to type down. I had to type it out. "Quote: I really truly believe there's something wrong with this guy. I don't know what his problem is, but I'm sure it's hard to pronounce." End quote. <laughs> uh, which is ironic, because Morrow's been very, very, uh, you know, public about his struggles with bipolar uh, um, bipolarism. If if, that's, yeah. if I'm saying that right, so um, kind of interesting that he would point out some potential mental, you know. Uh, challenges with with mayhem but uh but yeah that that cracked me up and you know obviously some truth there and very sadly we're not you know talking about that today but you know mayhem's issues legal issues over the last several years and 
I mean, his last fight, he missed weight by 24 pounds. And I just, you know, he's, he's had a, just a real mess going on. So unfortunately it's very likely that there's some, some mental issues at play there, sadly, but I got to say Shields was looking quite swole. He'd clearly put on some muscle uh, for this bout, you know, trying to fill out his frame to get into that 185 mix and, 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 you know, looked like it was working. You got Big John McCarthy. He's the man in the middle for this one. So here we go. Entertaining first round. Shields got some takedowns early, but Mayhem was able to return the favor, and he actually got a couple of really nice lifting takedowns himself. So hard to score the round, but but I thought I thought uh, Mayhem acquitted himself pretty well. Yeah, it was a good round. Jake was looking very, as you pointed out, uh, Luke Rockhold-ish in terms of his physique. I mean, he looked really muscular, more so than before, and I think afterward uh he definitely stood out and you know i'm gonna say some things about jake during this fight that are good and bad and hopefully i never run into jake into a dark in a dark alley somewhere but you know in this round i mean he's brilliant right he's just so skilled with jujitsu and it's it's like just another level because he sticks to you like glue you just you can't get away from him, you know, and he, he tied up Miller in so many positions. He just out, outclassed him. And it's, if you are into MMA and if you're into jujitsu and you're into appreciating the sport, you are watching this and it is high level, right? It, it, it doesn't get any better than this. But if you're a fan who's just there to watch Fedor or, you know, you're just there to watch the heavyweight fight or you're just tuning in on TV because it's Saturday Night Fights, what is, what is this? Um, you know, Shields did not do himself any favors. Um, you know, fighters who want to sell tickets need to come across a little bit more ferocious than this. They need to have a little bit more balance to their game. And it's even not just about selling tickets, but it's really also about just being versatile enough, depending on the type of person that you're going to fight. Jake was putting on a jiu-jitsu clinic, uh, but the crowd was cheering for mayhem. And there's something wrong with that because mayhem is the lesser skilled of the fighter, but of a fighter, but the crowd just does not understand, and, and, and UFC did not become mainstream because of jiu-jitsu. And I just think it's one of the things about Jake is even though this round was masterful, um, he really should have developed better stand-up skills. He could have been a whole level more marketable. Yeah, uh, and that there's some questions about his marketability after this fight for sure, and we'll, we'll get to that. But Shields got cut pretty good in the second. I think it was a clash of heads, and uh, but he was all over Mayhem just – Mayhem just could not get anything going. Nice trip takedown for Mayhem early on in the third, though Shields was able to stand to get his own takedown right after that. Miller would, would have gas, gasps of life here and there, and when he'd reverse position on the mat or get some distance and swing a shot, but that was really about it. I mean, Shields was just on him like a wet blanket. Finally, at the end of the round, Mayhem got Shields back and got a neck crank in, uh, and if the, the round hadn't ended, I think he actually might have put Shields to sleep. I don't know if Shields was just trying to let him squeeze his arms out and you know get tired, but... He, you know, and, and Mayhem's hand was kind of in the way, so you couldn't really see Shields' face. But I, he looked pretty red, and he, he seemed to be kind of turning colors there a little bit. So I, I, I actually kind of thought he had him, and I, I want to ask uh, Jake has agreed to come on the show. And so, by the way, I'll be doing that interview because I don't know that uh, it'd be good for you to talk to him. Um, but uh, <laughs> I, I plan on asking him about that. But, it, yeah, did you have any thoughts on that? Well, I mean, 
It looked really tight. Can you imagine how the course of MMA would have changed if, if Miller would have put Jake Shields to sleep on this show? I mean, or, or Jake would have tapped out. Um, I mean, this what he was clearly saved by the bell. Uh, I don't know how much longer he could have lasted. <clears throat> now, ironically, I did interview Shields, not after this fight, but later on uh, for a different fight. And I asked him about this moment and he said he was not in any kind of trouble, which okay. I, would ima- I would imagine he would say. But he said that it was it was not as tight as it looked. He was fine uh, and nothing was going to happen, even if there was more time in the round. Of course, that's what he said. But uh, from a viewer's perspective, he looked like he looked like it was almost done. And if you notice, when Jake Shields stood up, it might have just been from fatigue of the round, but but he wobbled a little bit. I mean, he, he did, that, pop, that, yeah. which is part of what made me think that it was legit because yeah. he did kind of seem a little unsteady on his feet. So, you know, yeah. But anyways, well, I'm glad we already got the answer to that. I guess I don't need to ask him about it. But <laughs> uh, but in the fourth, Shields certainly lengthened his lead on points as he just completely controlled mayhem on the mat and more of the same in the fifth and final round. And this fight really just came down to Shield's superior grappling, which Mayhem had little answer for. The crowd booed at times, but, you know, maybe that's where you heard some of those CM Punk chants. But uh, you can't fault Shields for doing what he had to do in order to win. And, you know, apparently Shields took a lot of heat for being, quote, boring in this fight. Um, in fact, uh, I think his, Kelly Call, I think was his name, was the um, – like a, one of the the Spike TV or not Spike, I'm sorry, one of the CBS execs, and you know, it just kind of echoes this idea of can you fault him for fighting in a way where you know he knew he was he was going to win? Yeah, where did the lay and pray term come from? Do you, do you that? Know? I yes, I am ninety percent sure that that came from Pride. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to say it might have been Stephen Quadros, but I think I heard that in Pride mm-hmm. for the first time on commentary. But that's mm-hmm. you know it, whether it was Pride or UFC, it was definitely early to mid two thousands. Yeah. You know, I can fault him a little bit for his style. Uh, you know, Jake is a great athlete, uh, top, you know, one of the best athletes in the world at the time, great MMA fighter, but, or I should say great MMA competitor, but he just, and it showed in this fight and it would really show when he eventually got his big fight against GSP. Now I know that's a little unfair because GSP was the best at the time, but um, he's such a good jiu-jitsu practitioner, but I wouldn't say that he's a great fighter. Uh, Jake fights to win on points or to earn a submission. And that's why a guy like Kimbo Slice can be a huge draw on television and Jake Shields cannot. So it is a bit of a business. And obviously, if you're Jake Shields, you're just like, I just want to win, get my money and move on. Okay, that makes sense. But uh, it, it hurt him. It, it definitely hurt him. You know, he's a good-looking guy. He had a great physique. He had all the tools. Now, he could not cut a promo to save yeah, his so life. I was to say, he couldn't talk, <laughs> obviously. But, you know, yeah. but he was not. I mean, he, he didn't. He really shouldn't have had to. Luke Rockhold can't really cut a promo either, if we're being honest. But he could at least get some energy into his words. Uh, Jake just... Uh, you know, really good, so good, but just not the total package. And I just, by comparison with the Gegard Mousasi fight, I mean, Gegard does not speak, well, he spoke a little bit of English, but, uh, you know, he didn't cut great English language promos, but he didn't have to. Like, this dude was, like, fighting. Like, he was there to win. He was there to knock somebody out. And uh, it's just sort of this different style, different kind of mindset that you have to do, you know, even we talked about Fabricio Verdum, you know, same thing, also a jujitsu black belt, 
not just relying on that, but learning how to how to throw a punch. I mean, I don't know, a uh, Phil. If you, I mean, if you got punched by Jake Shields, a left hand, are you scared of that? Are you losing sleep over that? Well, I don't want honestly? anybody. I don't want anybody to punch me. Well, I know. Actually, taken train. You know, actually done striking <laughs> training. No, I don't want to take it from him. But if you're yeah. asking me, if you line up, you know, him, Mayhem, Musasi. Uh, you know, Kung Lee. Yeah, okay, he'd probably be the You're first one that I'd be like, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll take it from him. So I, yeah. I, I, Kung Lee's the last one. Well, I, I would bite his punches, but when it comes to kicks, he's the very last one I'm taking it from. Yeah, I, I 100%. There's no, no doubt on that. But all right, well, Shields will be back to defend his title against Dan Henderson in Nashville the following year, and that ended up being the scene of the brawl that changed the course of history for Strike Force, and that is not an understatement. Uh, Jake has agreed, as I mentioned, to come on the podcast to discuss his defense of that title against Hendo as well as the brawl, so look out for that soon. I, I actually um, got a call from Scott Coker uh, this past week, and he was just kind of checking in on the podcast, and I let him know Jake was coming on, and he, he you know, made a made kind of a joke and, um, you know, talking about coming back to Nashville, Nashville not being a great, uh, you know, not Bellator coming to Nashville. They, I don't know that that's at the top of their their priority list based on his history here. So I was like, you know, Hey, you come here with Bellator. I'll be front and center. And uh, yeah, he's like, I don't know that we're going to be there anytime soon. So I can't say I blame him, but uh, may it, yeah. yeah. Uh, Mayhem would also compete at that Nashville event, which set up the aforementioned brawl. And so we'll discuss him more then, but it is main event time. Here we go. Heavyweight bout Fedor Emelianenko. Defeated Brett Rogers via TKO, coming by way of punches at 148 of the second round. I want to mention Fedor and Rogers did some promotional work. They both appeared at a Chicago Bears game. Rogers made an appearance on Last Call with Carson Daly, and Showtime produced a pre-fight documentary of shorts called uh, of sorts, excuse me, called Fight Camp 360: Fedor versus Rogers. So again, they were trying to trying to push it. Fedor's resume was really pretty much untouchable by other heavyweights at this point. I mean. Rodrigo Noguera twice, Mark Coleman twice, Kevin Randleman, Mark Hunt, Tim Sylvia, Andre Arlovsky, Mirko Krokop in one of my all-time, all-time favorite fights. Uh, you know, they had all fallen at the feet of the last emperor, and Fedor had secured both the Pride Heavyweight and 2004 Pride Heavyweight Grand Prix uh, in in the process. I'm sorry, both the, the championship and the Grand Prix. Just, I, I mean, simply amazing, really not, not, not anybody in his... Uh, his like in his stratosphere at that point. However, Rogers undefeated all finishes, I believe primed and motivated to really prove that he was one of the best heavyweights out there as well. Ironically, both Fedor at 30 and one and Rogers at 10 and 0 were coming off wins over Andre Arlovsky. You got to kind of feel for the pit bull there. Uh, but as often was the case, Fedor weighed in a lot lighter than his opponent clocking at 232 pounds while Rogers was at 264 pounds. You know, we never really talk about this, but Fedor essentially walking around at 230 pounds and not having like a really cut body or anything like that. If he had really, you know, taken nutrition seriously or really tried to tried to lose a little bit of weight, maybe walk around at 220 and then cut, he could have cut down to light heavyweight. I really think he was, I mean, he was thick, but I really think he was a la, a natural, um, you know, a natural light heavyweight. So I, that's not in my notes. It's just something that kind of came to mind. But, uh, but anyways, here we go. Strike Force debut. Fedor got a huge ovation when his name was announced, which I think was a win. Uh, Rogers was in great shape for this one. He'd clearly taken his training very seriously. Fedor got cut on his nut or his nut. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Awesome. Fader got cut on his nose really quickly. Uh, I have to decide whether or not I want to leave that in. Um, <laughs> it looked like it came from a, a Rogers jab. Um, it actually looked like it might have even broken his nose. I think later it showed it was just a really bad cut, but it was this real straight left jab from Rogers that opened up this nasty cut on Fedor's nose. Uh, Fedor then got one of his trademark kind of trip throw takedowns showing off those judo chops or sambo chops, but Rogers got back up pretty quickly. Once they were separated, Fedor unleashed his wild punches, nailing Rogers with the left hand before getting a takedown. They scrambled on the mat and Fedor got, uh, went, went for a couple different submissions, but Robert Rogers persevered and uh, a really, really good first round. Come on, Phil. This was one of the greatest first rounds in MMA history. I, I'm I not, a, about that. I'm, I mean, this, this was freaking Kurt Angle and Shawn Michaels back and forth but not in a worked environment in a legit environment you need to watch this round again this round was so good and, and it was good because whatever brett rogers his legacy is not what they had hoped but in this fight he fought a hell of a round i mean this guy was the best he could be in this round and fedor was getting lit up <laughs> he was getting tagged he was bleeding he saw the blood coming it was back and forth. I mean, I guess maybe it was after watching that Jake Shields fight. <laughs> <laughs> this yeah. all of a sudden, you know, it seemed so dramatic. But, I mean, these guys were in it to win it. And that was a very different sort of experience sort of when you're watching it. But there's no coasting here at all. I mean, how many submission attempts did, did Fedor have? I mean, he kept trying everything he could. He had his Sambo judo throws uh, in there. Uh, I mean, he, he was tough and he was bleeding and he was fearless and, and Rogers, he, he was rock too. He fought really well. He showed some heart, some guts in there with, you know, the guy that many believe was the greatest of all time. And, uh, I think it's the, what we saw here was experience. We saw that Fedor had been in the deep waters before and, uh, he was not uncomfortable being there and, Rogers was getting thrown around like he had never been thrown around before by a guy smaller than him, but knew how to use his body and leverage. And I think that sort of took him out of his game plan. And let me just say the entrance. I mean, it is the closest thing to an undertaker like entrance you're going to have in okay. MMA. It was so it's like, just it's chilling. You yeah. know, it's just like, you just the, the the whole house all of a sudden it just like stops to watch Fedor enter. It's it's unreal. All right, I I don't know that I'll bite on one of the greatest rounds in MMA history, but it was better than I laid out. I will agree to that as long as you never, as long as you agree to never ever use the the term "in it to win it" again on this podcast. That's 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 my deal. I'll 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 give you one of the better ones, and it was more exciting, but I never want to hear that again. So okay, I'll I'll, I'll I will forever abandoned in it to win it as long as i can continue to mention ben Askren and cm punk <laughs> at least once on and, every and, subsequent and luke show Rockhold, and luke rockhold <laughs> <laughs> all right fair enough you're right. you're right on the entrance though it was just that kind of spooky russian music and uh it was or not spooky but just that very somber you know uh music i i, I agree with you all we were so. missing were druids yeah Come there on. you go that, they would not have been out of place i'll i'll fully admit that they would not have been out of place in that entrance so 
But man, you mentioned the Crimson Mask. I mean, Fedor was bleeding a ton. It was a lot. So that that's you know good point there. But more good action in the second with Rogers showing. I mean, he really belonged. I mean, that's that's the thing. I mean, we got to stop and say that that Rogers at ten and zero. I mean, a third of the experience of Fedor and not nearly the level of competition. Yes, in his last couple of fights, and you know he'd fought on Elite XC and uh, on CBS and that sort of thing, but. I mean, nowhere near the attention that Fedor had gotten for him to not just be hanging, but actually hurting Fedor. To me, it was, it was a huge win for him, even though he lost, but you know, I wonder how much of that was just Fedor's skills, uh, either starting to erode or maybe in, you know, if I'm Dana White watching this fight, I'm laughing to myself thinking like, all right, this, this guy's, you know, nothing in comparison to Fedor, right? Like on paper, he's nothing. He should not even be in the cage with them. They feed him this guy for his first fight. They want Fedor to get this big knockout, which he does end up doing, but he, you know, gets hurt a lot. And, and, and to be fair, that did happen to Fedor a lot. I mean, as, as great as he was, he got cut. I mean, he got caught by Kazuyuki Fujita. Uh, you know, he got dumped by the Mo- Kevin the Monster Randleman. The fight with Krokop was back and forth and close. So it's not like he was just beating everybody decisively with just no, never getting touched or anything like that. So on the flip side, I kind of go back and forth in my mind. Was this the beginning of the erosion of Fedor's skills? He's 33. We start to see, you know, he's no longer in his physical prime, technically, all that stuff. He's been in a ton, a ton of wars. Is this really the, the sign that he's mm-hmm. kind of, you know, going down the, as a, as a fighter or was just more that Rogers was really that good. So, I mean, there's no way to know that hundred percent, but Rogers regardless has shown that he belongs. Then Fedor uncorks this overhand, right? That just ended things. And that was it. And huge reaction from the crowd and the commentators. And I mean, to me, it sounded like a gun going off <laughs> when Fedor landed. I mean, a couple follow-up shots on the mat and big John waved things off, but what a, I mean, that's, if that's, if you're strike force, if you're Scott Coker, that's what you want. You want to see your hero quote unquote in jeopardy and then come back and get the, the stunning, you know, essentially almost a walk off KO. I mean, it was God, that was a loud punch. I, I don't know how that happened, but it was super loud. Yeah. And he kind of lunged, you know, it, it sounded like Fedora slapped his thigh almost. Ah. When he hit him. It was so loud. I like mean, a, it was like, like a young buck super kick. <laughs> It's literally sounded like that. You're just like, holy cow. Um, I, I watched it over and over and over and just, you know, looking at Roger's just head, just totally twist and twist and twist. What a, what a, what a blow. Um, and I just think it was because Fedor threw everything he could into that punch. And it was yeah. just that great counter punching. It was really thrilling. And probably, you know, as you just referenced, Fedor's last great moment, um, you know, inside the cage, uh, because he, his skills from this point, whether it was the competition he was facing or it was just, he's fighting in the U S and it's different than, you know, the past and he's just not used to it, but he just, uh, was net would never have that great come from behind victory again. And really it was the end of Brett Rogers too. I mean, if you look at his, his record, he was, he would never, uh, be able to come back to performing at this this kind of level you know i think he had to take on alistair over him after this and that's that's not not easy uh you know you mentioned uh dana white probably laughing watching fedor get his get, get his clock cleaned in the first round with a jab um and and in reading the wrestling observer uh what they said what dave Meltzer said at this time was he was quoting uh 
uh, Dana White at the press conference. If I hear any of you guys, sports writers, calling Fedor the best pound for pound, I'm going to go postal, White said. Do you think Brett Rogers would have lasted two minutes with Brock Lesnar? What do you think Cain Velasquez would do to him? So clearly we're still seeing uh, Dana White because he can't make money off Fedor doing everything he can to try to take down his his buying power, you know. And yeah. so so that that was interesting. Uh, quite honestly, I don't know that Brock Lesnar could beat Brett Rogers, quite frankly, even uh, yeah. back then. To, to uh, be fair, those were very different fighters. I mean, Brock and Kane are world class wrestlers. Yeah. I mean, they're not going to stand with Brett Rogers. They're going to shoot in and take him down and get take away his best weapon. Fedor is not a wrestler. Never been a wrestler. He's a good submission artist, but he's not going to shoot in and take you down. He, he'll, you know, do those judo throws and that sort of thing. But that's not that's not his game. He's a stand up fighter. So, in re- it really, in a lot of ways, it was not a great fight for for Fedor. I mean, it's an unproven commodity in Brett Rogers and a guy that can hurt him on his feet, who's much much bigger than him. And so, yeah, it's that's a totally different fight for sure. That you know, saying all that. Uh, you know, man, God, as much as I would have loved to seen Kane or sorry, Brock and, and Fedor in their primes, you know, Brock would have been a big problem for Fedor because he was so big uh, and, and, you know, could, could obviously, if he got his hands on him, could wrestle him, but you know, Fedor's hands being as quick as I, I could and Brock not liking being hit, you know, there's just, Oh man, I, I really hate that that fight never happened. That's one of, <laughs> that's definitely like a top three, like should have, but didn't, you know, when it comes to MMA, I, but, I'm looking at Saudi Arabia, 2025. Uh, right there. Yeah. <laughs> and and I, I quickly looked up the rest of, of Fedor's record. And I mean, you're saying that his win over rampage at Bellator 237 in December, 2019, you're telling me that that was not, <laughs> Oh my God. What an embarrassment. I love rampage, but what an embarrassing, what an embarrassment. I mean, that was just awful. And you know, he'd beaten Chael by uh, TKO in 2018 in Bellator. The Frank Mir one was, you know, that was, I mean, that was done in 48 seconds and you know, he caught Frank and put him down. So I, he still got the, you know, they always say the power is the last thing to go, yeah, but yeah. you know, the Bader loss, that was really hard to, that was really hard to watch. I mean, I, that was so, obviously, I mean, he's not, he's not who he used to be for sure, but you're right. This was really from like a, highlight real, you know, this was, this was it, you know, which is, which is sad. I mean, it's 2009. We're talking 12 years ago or 11 and a half years ago. I so. almost, I almost cried MMA tears. And what I yeah. mean by that is not real tears, but right. just like really, really sad when he lost to Dan Henderson. I mean, to oh, me, that, yeah, that, that was, was just like, cause he had hurt Dan Henderson and Henderson had knocked him out. Like while he was like an upper cut punch while he was on the ground. It was yeah. like, Oh, that was, was just it was like underneath the body and, yeah, I mean they were all hard. Those three losses were all hard to watch. But you know the first one, the 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 uh, Fabricio one was a you know a tap out. So that was just heartbreaking from a will perspective. But then to see him actually getting punched and like beaten with punches, that was that was hard. But hard. But huge win for Fedor and for Strikeforce. I mean, it looked like they had what they'd signed up for. And meanwhile, for Rogers, I, I think if anything, his stock had gone, you know, had gone even higher with with such a good showing for himself. So let me give Gus Johnson a little bit of credit here, if, if you just indulge me here for a second. Um, I know that he did not know MMA, and uh, you know it was sort of you know, obviously it's not his wheelhouse. But in the post-fight interview with Rogers, uh, I thought he did a good job of not letting Rogers give a generic answer. This is one of the things that I don't like about 
MMA post-fight interviews that I really oh, like a lot oh, more with You boxing. know what, real, real quick, I got to jump in. Yeah. You're you're absolutely right. I didn't even think about giving Gus credit here. Yeah. He actually made me feel like a little bit uncomfortable with the way that he kind of pushed back on Brett. Yeah. And I give him credit for doing that. I think you're 100% on because Brett was obviously very, very angry, very frustrated and all that stuff. You got this big and knowing what he's done since then, even more so makes it scarier, but you got this really, really ticked off monster. Uh, and, and Gus had the cojones to push back and, and, and demand an answer from him. So you're 100%. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, that's, that's right on, you know, Rogan DC, they tend to fan out a little bit with these fighters in the post-fight interview. It's very much, I compare it to like almost how the X Games uh, people interview, uh, you know, those athletes. It's like they're, they're almost in awe of their tricks and their stunts. And and there's never any like real questioning in that moment. But, but Gus, I mean, holy cow, he was squeezing Brett Rogers' shoulder. Brett actually tried to like move away and he pulled him back. And uh, he made him answer the question of uh, what went wrong in the fight. And you just don't see that very often. There's always this incredible respect to the fighter to let them go and do their thing. And it, what did it do? It got Brett to say that he doubted himself and that he should have thrown his hands more and that would be different next time. And honestly, that's exactly right. He gave Fedor so much respect that that he paid for it. You know, and he just had to go out there and try to take him out because, you know, he's not going to win the long fight with Fedor. So anyway, I just thought, hey, at least Gus Johnson brought a little something there that we didn't see with guys like Frank Shamrock and DC and definitely Joe Rogan. Yeah, I think that's fair. That's he deserves credit there. But as we mentioned, sadly, Fedor's last like real signature win and and his only win in strike force. So hard to believe Uh, both he and Rogers will be back in the future. and We'll be discussing them plenty um, both uh, in the, in the show coming up, no fighters popped for drugs of abuse or performance enhancers after the event. There was no uh, fighter payroll disclosed, but Josh, I, I see that uh, I saw that you were able to unearth a little bit of information. Why don't you go ahead and share that with the listeners? Yeah, yeah. From uh, Wrestling Observer, uh, uh, Dana White claimed without the backing of CBS, Strikeforce would not be able to afford to pay Fedor. Um, and it, it reports that Fedor received $400,000 as his pay for the fight. But M1 Global, which was the you know his Russian promotional company, got 50% of the profits of the show as co-promoter. So you can imagine Dana White saying, hell no, we're never going to cut a deal like that with you. Yeah. We're the UFC. Um, I, I, as, I don't blame him. I, I mean, we yeah. talked a little bit about that. I don't blame Dana White for saying no to, because of the co-promotional thing. I got yeah. no issue with him saying no to Fedor because of that. 50%? Come on. That's a That's, lot. That I mean, is the, a lot. The cable companies already take 50% of the paper revenue. It's a split. So, I mean, they're they're... It's they don't need that at all. Uh, And so uh, but M1 Global took 50 percent of the profits of the show, as well as the rights to market the fight overseas. They got the show on one of the biggest stations in Russia. This is from Dave Meltzer. The first time MMA would be seen by so many people in that country. So um, Fedor got four hundred thousand dollars, which is a lot of money for Strikeforce. Yeah, Yeah. no, no, no doubt about that. And. You know, I don't know how much I'm going to say that Dana's right on that, but, um, you know, there was a lot of partners involved with, with Strikeforce. It was never like a, 
Dana and the Fertitas type situation like it was with the UFC back in the day. So definitely different situation. But want to uh, want to hurry. We're running a little long here, so I want to want to uh, mention a couple more things before we wrap things up. We should mention Mark Miller and DeRay Davis, as as we had uh, talked about earlier. They were scheduled to fight, but. The fight was canceled the night of the event. Basically, they ran out of time, kind of what you talked about earlier with the Musasi fight. Both fighters had cut weight, weighed in, etc. So to be told that, you know, that night they wouldn't be fighting was devastating. In fact, Miller reportedly contemplated retiring in the car ride home after the event, and he would not end up competing in strike force. So uh, unfortunately, you know, I kind of feel bad for him for that. The final ratings for Fedor versus Rogers, very strong, though not record-setting. Five and a half million viewers tuned in for the main event, meaning there was a great deal of interest in seeing Fedor fight as the card averaged just over four million viewers the rest of the time. So not outstanding, but again, strong. I, I thought it was a great event. I, I feel like the Shields Mayhem fight was a little bit more exciting than, than you did, but it definitely could have been more exciting. Shields did what he felt like he needed to do. Musassi and Sokoju, that was an entertaining bout. Verdun and, and Bigfoot for a heavyweight fight that goes to a decision. I thought that was really exciting. Uh, Rogers made a good showing before getting caught. And if you're strike force, again, you wanted Fader to win in convincing and exciting fashion while being put in peril at some point. So that's what happened. Good CBS debut for the promotion. Josh, uh, what did you think as we wrap things up? Yeah, no, I love the show. I thought it was good for all the reasons we talked about. Just the production, the presentation, CBS, the, you know, the intro with Fedor and the video package. It was slick. It was smooth. Uh, we saw some good fights with uh, Gegard Mousasi. Obviously, the, the Fedor, Fedor KO uh, was just like this huge moment. You know, we're not going to see anything like that again, you know, in primetime CBS. I mean, this is a guy who was undefeated for all intents and purposes, and here he was rising and reaching his peak on U.S. television, and I thought that was great. The Shields-Miller uh, thing we talked about, you know, it was what it was. Um, yeah, and uh, it would have been the last mark that Jake Shields would make on Strike Force on CBS, as we will talk about down the road. Yeah. All right, well, coming up, we're going to be speaking with former Strikeforce head of communications, Mike Aframovitz, who was essentially, uh, you're in my manager, actually, back in the day. Um, he's going to delve into the Fedor deal and what it meant to Strikeforce, so I'm looking forward to that. After that, we'll be covering Strikeforce Evolution, which features one of the best Strikeforce fights of all time, Kung Lee versus Scott Smith. One, Josh is going to be interviewing Scott about that bout. I know that you're looking forward to that. Uh, and then after that, it's time to get to Strike Force Nashville and the brawl that changed everything. Jake Shields, as I mentioned, has graciously agreed to join us for that one. So I'm looking forward to that. Make sure you check us out on social media. You can follow us on Twitter and on Instagram at the Hexagon Pod. You can reach me at Phil at InsideTheHexagon.com. Would love to hear from you. Please also make sure you rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you get the show that would help others to find us. But with that... We're going to go ahead and ride off into the sunset. We hope that you stay safe and you stay healthy, and we will see you soon. Hey there, and welcome to the Joy of Paddle podcast, hosted by me, Minter Dial, a veteran of the paddle tennis world, and sponsored by Paddle 1969. Whether you're a paddle tennis aficionado, just beginning, or have never even heard of paddle, 
or Padel, as it's called in North America. This is an exhilarating new show that delves into the captivating stories of notable paddle personalities worldwide. In its inaugural season, you'll be treated to exclusive anecdotes, valuable tips, life lessons, and humorous moments shared by esteemed professional paddle players, industry insiders, and passionate paddle enthusiasts. With each season aligning with the Pro Tour, you can anticipate two engaging episodes per month. The Joy of Paddle Podcast is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, where you can find other great shows in a number of categories, such as sports, health and wellness, true crime, and fiction. To find out more about Evergreen Podcasts, go to www.evergreenpodcast.com. Vamos! Vamos!